Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Today we're going to talk about yesterday. Not specifically your yesterday, because obviously that would be weird, but the art of memoir. How words on a page can draw us into the lives of others, taking us back in time to share the experience of people and places we may otherwise never know. To take us on this journey, I'm joined by award-winning author Patty Miller, who's regarded as one of Australia's most successful memoirists and has recently published Writing True Stories. Hello, Patty. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Memory can often be a, a very unreliable narrator. So how do you manage what is memory and how we would otherwise like to remember things when, when you're writing? Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, in memory is pretty much a confabulator. It, it, does, it's, it makes things up. Um, it puts together um, bits of TV shows and something somebody else said and something that might have happened to you and turns them all into something that feels and looks exactly like a memory to you. And it's also highly selective. It just notices what it wants to notice. So it is very unreliable and really all you can do is actually uh, understand and realise that that's, you're constructing um, a reality on the page from something that is essentially uh, a fiction in a way. David McCuey, who's a Melbourne academic who writes theoretically about autobiographical writing, says that everything that goes through memory is a fiction. And I think, yes, that, that's confronting, but I actually think it's, it's true. You know, it is, it is a construction. And if you accept and realise that, then you can work with it. Think this is actually the only reality I have is this fictional construct, which is made of things that did happen and that I dreamt and that I saw happen and uh, bits, selective bits of what did happen. Then this is what I can make the world on the page out of. But I do think if there are verifiable facts involved, then you do need to verify them because it can be very embarrassing and undermining if you have uh, verifiable facts that turn out not to be true. It's an interesting one when you look at facts and certainly moments of history when you can have witness accounts of an event mm. and you can have five different people who saw the same event and record it five different ways or report it back five different ways because memory gets in the way. Absolutely. I, I always think I, I was watching not so long ago, actually maybe three years ago, there was a television program that was actually about memory and what we noticed and there was uh, they asked the audience, us, um, to uh, watch people about... 10 people dancing in and out of two circles and to count how many times they went in and out of the circles. And so I watched it on the television and I said 17 and my partner said 23 and I thought, oh, he was probably just showing off. And that, but then the, the broadcaster came back on and said, and did you see the giant penguin? And he replayed it and a person in a penguin suit had walked across the stage and neither of us even saw the giant penguin. And I thought, yes, that's what memory is like wow. there there was a giant peg penguin walking across the stage and neither of us saw it because we were too busy counting 
Yeah, so you're task oriented because you're asked to do one thing, and that's yes. what the the brain focuses on. Absolutely, and and I think that's what you're doing in your life as mm. well. You're not noticing all sorts of things, you know. So so to say this is the this is the true and ultimate account of an experience is is complete nonsense, really. I mean, we depend on that every day, and the courts depend on it as well. But you know that's the that's the way it is, and 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 I I accept that. You know that it's just my uh, version of of what happened. You know, and I don't mind if anyone contradicts it. So, when writing memoir, then do you have to give yourself permission to have that freedom of expression to sort of know that it's not going to be deathly accurate? Yes, I think I think that to me the thing to do is to examine your motives. You know, um, perhaps you are actually uh, un- distorting um, the memory consciously um, or unconsciously because you actually have uh, perhaps a less than admirable motive, perhaps revenge, say, mm. you know, or self-aggrandizement or something like that, you know. And, and I always say to people, when you're thinking about, you know, um, you know, your version of the truth, think about your motivation. What is it that you're really trying to do here? And if you really and clearly and honestly are trying to, um, you know, reconstruct the reality as you experienced it, then then go for it, you know. But, but do look at that carefully because... Um, all sorts of distortions can occur. And if you haven't looked at it clearly and you are accused after the the book is published, then you're in a pretty uncomfortable situation. Well, we have seen that with some, some very significant biographies in order, or some more specifically autobiographies where people said that didn't happen. Um, what do you say to people when they when you detect that they are fictionalising the story they're trying to tell? Well... I mean, part, partly I ask what is, is the motivation, but, but I also say that the relationship between a reader and a writer in memoir for, is very much based on the same kinds of conditions as a friendship. And that is, and more so than when you're reading a novel, the reader-writer relationship is different. It's more like um, perhaps the an entertainer, entertainer and, and audience. audience. Yeah. Whereas, and so you're happy for them to be on Mars or do whatever. But with memoir, it's more like the relationship between friends where you don't mind generally in friendship if someone exaggerates or embroiders or, you know, kind of has their own very selective version of things. We all expect that. But we don't want them to take us for a ride emotionally. We don't want them to take the like. So it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. So if they say something, you know, that their father beat them every day and and you sympathise and and understand, and the next day they say, oh, I just made that up to see what you do, you probably wouldn't be friends with them. So I think that's that I ask people to look at that, you know, if you are are going to create, um, you know, conversations and scenes that you weren't at or don't remember or whatever, Remember that relationship of of trust. It's, it's what um, Philippe Lejeune, who's a French uh, theorist who wrote, write, wrote about, still writes about autobiography. He called it the autobiographical pact, and that's that agreement really. You know that if the I that is talking about what's happened to them is the I um, who walks around in the world, they, those things did happen to them to the best of to the best of their knowledge. But some people do create fictional sequences 
and signal it. And I think that can work really well. Say um, Alexandra Joel in uh, Rosetta, she was writing about her great-grandmother. And so she fictionalised great long sections of her great-grandmother's life. But we knew she was doing that. We could see what she was, because she was there as the narrator, letting us know that, of course, she couldn't know, you know, what happened in her great-grandmother's bedroom on her wedding night, but this is what she Yes, there's a, there's a great deal of fictionalising that must go on in biographies when you look back, even at family biographies, when you're left with perhaps a suitcase full of black and white photographs mm. and you, you start telling a story based on the, the stories you've been told or the myths and legends and then what's in front of you. Yes, yes, and I think um, Kate Grenville did that very well in One Life, where she had she actually had her mother's journal. Um, so you know, she and she was able to inhabit her mother in a very interesting way. I think when when she wrote about it, and I, I find that you know that uh, a lot of the people who come to my workshops, um, they want to write memoir, but they often do want to write a biography about somebody that they know that they're involved with. So they're in the story as well. And there's other people who are researching stories. Uh, that they are connected to, say, you know, for me, The Mind of a Thief, where I was looking at a um, Mabo native title claim in my hometown. So it's kind of, you know, and, and it, then when you're at researching other material, that's when you've got to get your facts really right. No invention there. Well, I want to ask you about that time when you did go back to your hometown, mm. and um, mm. which is in the central north? Central west. Central west, I Central apologize. west, yes, of New C South Wales. Central yes. west and New South Wales. Um, where you had quite an encounter with um, some of the women of the local Indigenous area and discovered a little bit more about your history that you hadn't expected as well. That's right, that's right. Tell it, us about yes, that, please. Yes, I actually, um, that first conversation, that happened a long time before I started the book, in fact. You know, I, I was up there because I was wanting to do a, a memoir workshop for the Indigenous people in my hometown because I'd noticed that um, even though I'd been doing workshops at that point all over the Central West, that Indigenous people didn't come to, to the workshops. And I understood that it was because they felt a little bit threatened, that it wasn't their, their territory. So I thought I'd design a workshop that was just for them and had readings by Indigenous writers and all that kind of thing. And I went up to the health uh, community health meeting because I knew that's where everyone came who was interested in organising things in the town. And I knew I had to talk to people first. I couldn't just land there and, you know, expect everyone to turn up. And uh, I, I told them about what I was doing and, and um, they listened politely. And afterwards we were having a cup of tea and a woman that I didn't know came up to me and said... Uh, uh, do you have any black fella in you? And I said, well, no, not as far as I know. And, and if, if, if people could see me, they could sit, they would see, you know, red-haired, freckle-faced, <laughs> fairly Irish-looking background woman. And, um, th and she and everyone else burst out laughing when I said no, not as, and, and then I said, not as far as I know. And, uh, and so then I said, because I felt a bit, you know, embarrassed then, and I said, well, um, do you know any different? And, um, she shrugged and she said, don't ask me. She said, ask Joyce Williams. And she indicated another woman on the other side of the room. So I went over there. And I'd actually interviewed her brother some years before when I was writing my first sort of memoir, non-fiction book, um, the, whatever, the, uh, the last one who remembers. And I'd, I'd interviewed him. So I didn't know her, but I, I knew about her. 
And I said, um, the woman over there told me to ask you if I had any black fella in me. And she looked at me very piercingly and she said, the white fellas and the black fellas have got two different stories about who's related to who in this town. And, th and that really stopped me in my tracks. And I realised more and more there were two parallel stories. And it turned out um, my dad's grandmother and her grandfather were brother and sister. So that was, that was true. So she was related to me and she went round and introduced me to everyone in the health centre as her cousin, which I also felt a bit embarrassed about because I thought, you know, she, um, you know, she, she welcomed me too warmly. I mean, I was, a, in a way, I was a stranger, even though I'd grown up in that town. And, and I felt, wow, she's so generous about this. Did that yeah. change your perception on how you'd grown up or your, your connection to the region now? Um, I don't know that it did because I didn't grow up in an Indigenous culture, which I realised was running parallel and from the outside looked pretty much the same, you know, the same kind of, you know, clothes and, and, and houses and all that kind of stuff. But I, there's a different cultural atmosphere, which I wasn't so much part of, but in a way I wasn't even part of the... Um, Australian um, kind of white culture either in that I was I was living in books most of the time so really I guess my head was in in many ways in England you know and I think many people who grew up at that time were reading uh, English um, children's books because there weren't many Australian books Available. So it was in Blyton and yeah, Charles Dickens and Yeah, that kind like of that. thing. I did Logged read, down. there was Mary Grant Bruce who wrote those Billabong books, there was her, and there was um, Ethel Turner who wrote Seven Little Australians, but they were very old-fashioned, kind of 19th century kind of writers. So I kind of grew up in this weird 19th century kind of version of, of reality. So I wasn't kind of part of either. But it, it didn't propel you forward to sort of look at the, uh, any of that sort of rich storytelling from the, the Indigenous cultures? Well, it, it did. It made me, um, and 10 years later, I guess, was when I, I started writing um, The Mind of a Thief. And that's when it really kind of kicked in. I was talking to... Uh, Wiradjuri um, men and women uh, out there and it really um, expanded my understanding of what it meant to grow up Indigenous in Australia in that particular kind of environment, one that had been settled by Europeans for a long time, not the, not at all the same as it is perhaps for, for Indigenous people in um, Northern Territory or, or Western Australia, but, but in areas like New South Wales that have been settled um, by Europeans for a long time. And I understood uh, much more the complexity of, of the lives that they'd lived um, but also, and this is something that other people have said, but it did strike me too, the kind of generosity of spirit as well, like introducing me as a cousin, so that kind yeah, of so thing. So just as you've experienced it firsthand. Yes, that's yeah. right. And it also led me to researching the Wiradjuri language, which was really interesting. And there is a Wiradjuri dictionary now, but when I was first looking, there wasn't. There was just the one that was in the Mitchell Library, which was put together by the Reverend James Gunter in something like 1829, 1831, something like that. Um, and it was just that, just that copy. Um, 
So it, it led me in, into that, but also I did research some of the Wiradjuri stories of the area. But I guess what I was more interested in, I was interested in the language, but in, in the history of what had happened um, with European settlement, you know, the, the whole reserve um, movement, which really was an Australian version of apartheid, which was putting um, Indigenous people together in small, containable groups, and then the implications of that in terms of family structures and and um, sense of identity. All, it, affect, it affected everything, really. Do you find yourself ever getting lost in the research? Um, then I did. Um, I mean, it's been a few years since I wrote that book, um, and I especially got lost in it with... I found uh, a online... It was called the Wellington Valley Project, but what it was was a, rec uh, a record of the missionaries' diaries. The missionaries had come to Wellington in the late 1820s, and so they were ve there very early on. I think the first white crossing of the Blue Mountains was 1813, is that right? I, I couldn't tell you. I think, it was, I think it was 1813, or was it 1815? But anyway, and my first white ancestor arrived in 1813 as well, was it was a convict. So I, I, think, I think it was that year. Yeah, yes, it was that year. So the missionaries were there very early on. So the, the culture of the Wiradjuri was, was pretty much intact. And the the missionaries were recording what they saw. And of course, they were recording it through uh, Western, you know, 19th century gentlemen missionaries' eyes. One, one of them was German, or maybe two of them were German, actually. Um, and so I know, of course, it's very much in the perspective. They probably didn't see any of the giant penguins walking around or anything like that. They were seeing through their own eyes. But still, that's the only written record we have. And these are diaries? These were diaries. It was yeah. 900 pages of them. And I became completely addicted to them. Like I'd go online and think, I'll just read for five minutes. And like three hours <laughs> later, I'd still be there. And each time I would go to the manuscript and I decided to use some extracts directly, um, and each time I thought, there's too much, I'll have to cut it back. Every time I went in to cut it back, I ended up adding material to it. So that's how far gone I was in terms of obsession about it. And I thought, I'll leave it to the editor at the publishing house. And uh, she loved all of it. She didn't want to take any of it out. So it's it stayed in there pretty much as it was. But I liked being able to see through their eyes my place a couple of hundred years ago. That was that was fascinating to me, to actually look out through their zealous eyes <laughs> at, at the world. But it also, because they were concerned with saving souls, they were the only people who recorded the Wiradjuri as individuals. So I could see the guys who were kind of bits of war brands and, and the guys who were... Um, a bit kind of layabout lazy and the ones who are real jokers and funny and all that kind of thing. So, so, so you've got a really good sense of the of the, the group themselves. Yes, the, the, yes. All the personalities yes, within yes, the tribe. that's right. They weren't just Wiradjuri to the to the missionaries, to explorers and other people like that. There was and, and other anthropological kinds of people. They they were kind of a monolithic you know, let's observe the cultural habits. Whereas for the um, missionaries, it wasn't like that at all. They were looking at individuals because they were trying to save their souls. So we could see the jokers and we saw the guy who um, 
didn't want to wear the brand new blue jacket that the Reverend Watson had bought him in Bathurst that last week for five shillings, which would have been a lot of money. He didn't want to wear it because it made him, basically, he said, because it wasn't cool. <laughs> This was this was Carabin. I remember. I remember him. He said he didn't want to look like a new chum, and I thought that's exactly like. He's probably about you know. I imagine him as a late teenage guy. And he didn't. He didn't want to look uncool, <laughs> and, and I just love that because it, it just gives me the variety of you know individuals, you know, and and, and their sense of humour about things and their wry observations about the the um, missionaries, you know, who were always kind of um, seemed to be unhappy and fighting amongst themselves about who'd taken the muslin or the candles or whatever and wondering why the Waradjuri didn't want to be like them because they weren't successful. They were not successful. They did not manage. To, I mean, they like coming along, the Waradjuri like coming along to sing because they love to sing and they loved to learn to read. And in fact, one of them, um, my favourite all-time quote, um, from one of the missionary was missionaries was that um, they were so lazy they would rather read than work, and I thought yes, <laughs> I I connect. <laughs> yes, these yes. are my people. Yes, these are my people. Yes, <laughs> it's it's a wonderful reflection of the value of memoir, isn't it? Like being able to, to that, just that entire experience, being able to dip into other people's lives uh, and capture a moment and capture absolutely. history. That's that's what I love, you know, and that's what you can pass on. I mean, one of my favourite um, uh, memoirs, and most people think think of him as an essayist rather than a, a memoirist, but I think he's the first kind of modern memoirist, and that's Montaigne from the 16th century. And he was writing about his own experience of being, and when I was writing ransacking Paris and before, I was absolutely immersed in Montaigne, you know, reading Montaigne's essays. And I came to feel that I knew him and felt closer to him than just anybody alive. And I thought, isn't that interesting that you feel that connected? That's what I mean by that friendship connection. There is a kind of open heart and mind connection that happens in good memoir. And I felt like I loved Montaigne. And the weird thing was I felt like he knew and loved me as well. <laughs> and that's a bit strange. But it, but it is fascinating how the, the, the ability of language to connect through the years, through, through hundreds of years often, to just grab hold of a piece of us yes. and own us for a moment. Yes, and, and connect to us really deeply. And, I mean, he is about as different you know, from me as you could expect, really. I mean, he was, he was a, um, you know, early Renaissance um, kind of provincial aristocrat, uh, male, you know, lived in a chateau. Um, and, you know, I was a kind of, you know, Australian woman from the 20th, 20th 21st century um, from a poor farming background. Um, and yet I felt so deeply connected to him. So that to me is, is the value of literature altogether. But I think maybe particularly memoir because you actually hear a particular voice in memoir which is that person speaking to you and, um, and seeming to listen to you when it's a good memoir. There's a kind of a connection that happens which is very powerful. Have you ever felt anything since to that level? As Montaigne? Yes. Um, 
Have you discovered a replacement for him? No, I mean, he's, he's still a passion, I think. Montaigne is, is, is still a passion. And I've discovered a few others, lovers of Montaigne as well, who say, <laughs> he's mine. I said, no, no, he's mine. Um, so I, I was reading, I was seeing him first. Yes, yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I've read about him a lot as well. And, and that's one of the things that's remarked upon, that in each kind of new, each century, each um, person feels like not just that um, they know him, but that he knows them as well. So I'm actually not alone in, in this feeling. But no, I, I don't know that, that there has been since then um, as, as strong a feeling, but it's probably a matter of having the time to dive really deeply into somebody else's being in that way. Yes, that, that willingness to really experience everything that they had to offer that's or right. that they left behind, perhaps. That's right, that's right. You know, and and um, even, you know, being a writer and my whole life being about literature, I don't get the time to read as much as I want to either. You teach writing. You've been teaching writing for over 20 years now. Um, what is it about the attraction of helping people find their stories? Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's it's been a, probably more than twenty five years now, actually. And and um, I didn't start out to be a teacher. In, in fact, I you know I, I didn't ever train to be anything like that. I started you know as a writer, and I but I found I started teaching at university, um, teaching a writing class, and I actually quickly realised that I really loved the development, seeing somebody develop. I never actually thought of myself as a very nurturing kind of person. Oh, really? But in fact, um, I do nurture writers. So that was kind of interesting to me. I, and I realised I get a lot of pleasure from seeing somebody's work develop, you know, that they start off unconfident, unsure, unskilled, and then a few months later, they have developed those skills and their confidence in their writing. So I guess it's the pleasure of, uh, of any, um, anyone who enjoys seeing other people develop. I guess it, in, in a sense, it's the pleasure of, of a mother in, in a way, you know, that, that joy of seeing um, a human being develop is it's I think it's probably a a natural instinct um, to to enjoy uh, that kind of development but I think I specifically started working in um, memoir after I'd been teaching it at university and it's because I'd noticed a lot of people were interested in writing about their own lives and I realized that my own writing practice which was fiction um, was very much based on my own life so I thought I'd design a class for them mm. and it filled instantly and, and was straight away um, uh, very popular and I became more and more passionate about the whole area of, of memoir myself and most of my although I've written a novel and many short stories, most of my writing practice now is non-fiction and memoir. So it took over my life, really. Do you think some of that is because in many ways when you're teaching people how to write and getting them to tell their stories, you are still writing. You're sort of writing through them because you're bringing out their story. Well, I think it's a different process, actually, I, and I think it's dangerously close to writing because it can give you a lot of the emotional rewards of it. And it can actually, I think, divert me from writing because I get a lot of pleasure from seeing other people develop. But I think it's a different part of the brain because it takes me a little while to change gear to the writing process. I think the teaching process comes more from the intellect, if you like, and it's more about 
the editing. So you're being very aware about sentence structure and all those kinds of things and overall structure and creating a world on the on the page. Whereas when you're writing, it's it's a lot more, if you like, unconscious. It comes a lot more from the right brain and it's a lot more uh, amorphous. Um, the dark brain, if you like, it, and it's harder to access. Yes. Like the intellect for me is easy, you know, because that's been my uh, my training, you know, at school. I was always, you know, good at school and university, all that kind of thing. So that comes easily to me. That's that's not hard work. What is hard work is accessing the creativity, um, because that's uh, a lot more underground. So I think it's it's actually, as I say, dangerously close, but not the same thing. Does it ever get in the way of your own writing? It it does, it does, but for two reasons. Um, it's not so much the time, um, because I usually only do I do one workshop a week, um, in one morning a week. So I have, I have the rest of the time, although I have, obviously have to prepare classes. But emotionally and mentally, it takes up space because I care about the people that I'm working with. So I just, I don't just go and do it by road. I care about what's happening. So it takes up emotional um, space. And I think it, it takes up a certain amount of um, sort of brain creative space as well. And I actually find the need to go away and have writing retreats to take time where I am away from this life and I can just concentrate on my writing, which is what the year in Paris was about as well. It was about just having time to write and not looking after anybody else. It was actually the end of the period for me of being the mother of children as well. The youngest son had left school and so I took a year off from looking after writers as well. So I had a year you, where you I... You let them all go. I did. I think, yes, the they can all look after themselves <laughs> um, um, for a year. So it, it does it does get in the way at times. But I actually like that. Um, I wouldn't want to be single-minded, I realised. I realised that years ago, you know, there was, that, there was always that thing about being single-minded. And I thought, no, I like being multi-minded. I like the fact that there's many different aspects to my life. And I'm happy enough to juggle them most of the time. Although sometimes, and right now is one of them, I feel overwhelmed with the other things that have to be taken care of and I'd like to get rid of them all and just concentrate on my writing at the moment. Well, I'll take no personal offence to that. No, 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 that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at your book and specifically it breaks down for people how to go about writing memoir, um, there's many suggestions for people to get started because everyone has a very different approach. And there's sometimes it's tapping into a sound, sometimes it's tapping into a scent, something, sometimes it's tapping into a moment. Where do you go to begin your memoir writing? Mm. That's interesting because I think it's different every time, actually. I think um, with The Mind of a Thief, it actually started and this is a little bit weird, uh, from a dream. You know, I was feeling particularly restless. I'd, I'd been living in Paris for the year and I'd come back and I had been living in the Blue Mountains for the last more than 20 years and, and I was really restless and we moved to King's Cross and I was feeling I, very, very discontent, very restless. And then early one morning I had a dream, which was just a sentence It said, go back to where you came from and tell its story. And I woke up, it was just before I woke up, and I woke up and thought, 
what bloody story. You know, it's the most boring little town in the world, you know. Couldn't wait to get out of it kind of thing. Um, but being a, you know, obedient person um, to dream instruction, I went online and found that the uh, the na a native title claim had been made in my hometown. In, in fact, um, the first post-Marbo native title claim had been made. And the day before uh, that I had the dream, um, a land rights ruling had been made um, on the land in Wellington, which is kind of spooky um, that I had dreamt it that night about it. There was also a story about a murder down the road from where I'd lived in, in the farm where I'd grown up. A couple of people had been murdered. It was something, the headline was something like um, Lotto winner murdered on farm or something. But I knew that wasn't my story. I thought, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't want to write about murders and um, even though that can be interesting, it wasn't my territory. I knew straight away that this was it. Yes, having, so, not, having not either murdered someone or won the lottery. Yeah, it, yeah, it just yeah. I know it seemed more like maybe Helen Garner's territory, yeah, you know. Yeah, or, yes. And and so I thought no, I, I wouldn't go there. And so that was where that story came from. But but to actually start, um, you know, one of the one of the. Um, Kind of ways of I think of memory becoming more concrete because I think after a while it can become a little abstract and and can it can become analyzed and intellectualized and I think you need to bring it back to being concrete so I think really um, uh, kind of strong sense uh, triggers are really useful like music can be useful you know, for, for me, you know, for wanting to write about a, a particular period in my life, you know, writing about being, say, a teenager, then if I listen to the music of that period, it can bring me right it's, it's back. It almost takes you back there immediately, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. It can make you feel exactly the same as you did then, whether you whether you want to or not. And if, if I accidentally hear, you know, on the radio some music from then, I can feel, and, and that terrace house that I was living in springs into life and all of that kind of thing. Um, and but I also think you know other sensory things like food, smells, all that kind of thing can can be really useful. And I always uh, think it's important to start with those kind of sensory portals because it's going to make mean that your writing is a lot more um, concrete, I guess rather than abstract. I think abstraction tends to make the mind blur fairly quickly. That's why when you're writing, or sorry, when you're reading academic um, texts, your mind blurs very quickly and it's hard to concentrate. It's almost like they're emotional anchors for you, both as a writer and a reader yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. And they're a way of, of the, you know, uh, actually connecting to the world because we are designed, I mean, we're hardwired to respond to the sensory world first, just to survive. We have to notice what's going on, you know, in the sensory world. And then we have emotional reactions to it and philosophical reactions and that sort of thing. So if we start with the sensory world, straight away the reader is more attentive and, and is pulled into the story. And it just, it just gives the, more of the texture of lived experience, not the analysed, interpreted experience. Gives it that richness in yes, many ways, yeah, you know, yeah, that depth yeah. of feeling yes, and, and emotion. Yeah, yeah. And, and we can feel, you know, in good sensory writing, we can feel the emotion without having to name it as well 
you know, because people think they have to talk about their emotions on the page for us to understand and feel it. But in fact, it's the opposite. You know, if you if I say, you know, um, this this man grieved, you know, his wife dying, you don't feel anything at all. But if you you know write about you know the the hospital bed and the metal uh, of the bed and and the softness of her hands and the thinness of her fingers, we start feeling it then, without us having to write, you know, love or grief or any of those words, we feel it because of the attention to detail in it. Attention to detail can also, though, at times get in the way of a story, can't it? For some people, it's getting trapped in the detail, which actually prevents them from moving forward or keeping the interest. It seems like a very thin line for some writers to walk. Yes, it's a good point, actually, I, I think, because people can overdo it. And I think it's, it, it's to do with what the detail is doing or not doing. Because and detail actually acts in the same way as a close-up in a film. It means notice this. So if we see a close-up of something in a film, say a, a, you know, a knife on a bench, sharpish knife on a bench, we all think, read that as take notice this is going to be picked up and used for some nefarious scheme yes yes yes. put a if you put a gun on stage you better use it yes that's right Mm. so yeah unless it's an absurdist play then (laughs) just just whatever's happening (laughs) um but um, then the elephant enters (laughs) yes yes and the elephant enters um but if you so if you are uh, putting that kind of detail in it's it's because it matters you know, so don't write lots of detail about, you know, the man that you meet in the corner shop un- unless you're going to fall in love with him on the next page, you know, because if the reader will think, well, what was that all there for? Why did I read all that stuff about what he was wearing and all that kind of thing? It, you know, it doesn't matter. No, I guess it's, it's again, again, that's that question of trust, which is um, why have you had me focus on them? Yes. So, Patty, should we all be looking for our own stories to tell? Well, I think that it's not a matter, matter so much of looking for stories. I think stories always come to us anyway, and, and I think that it is uh, up to us to be awake and aware of those stories. And I think it matters maybe more to some people than, than others in terms of, especially in terms of identity. I think if, if people come from a background that maybe is questioned or um, is under threat, you know, maybe they're Indigenous or perhaps, you know, it's to do with their sexuality or something like that, that then there's, they, they need to write their story. And for me, it's always been, you know, whether there is something kind of puzzling or disturbing that I need to, that I need to sort out. I mean, people say to me all the time, they find memoir writing very healing. And while I come from the point of view of the art and craft of it, I can see that that does happen. There's something empowering about telling your story. And it's also deeply pleasurable. I think I see that glow on people's faces and and I know it myself when I'm writing that there is something deeply pleasurable about reliving as you write and I remember the American writer Natalie Goldberg said writers live twice and I think that's great that's the kind of the gift um, I think of being a writer is that you get to live twice so um, yes I think if uh, everyone not that they should write a life story but it is a pleasure and and it's very rewarding. 
Paddy, it definitely sounds very rewarding, and certainly from the work that you've produced over all the years and all the people you've helped for the last 25 or more. So, Paddy, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, James. And Patty's work, Writing True Stories, is now available in stores and online. Also look for Ransacking Paris and The Mind of a Thief while you're there. This is James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Please follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW or like the Facebook page. And also it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes as that helps people to find us as well. Thank you so much for listening. We'll speak to you soon.